to the Ortho Eval Pal podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 276 of the Ortho Eval Pal podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis, and today we're going to be going over an orthopedic Q&A. Lots of questions I've been getting from listeners and uh, from folks on YouTube, and I thought, you know what, it's about time we just kind of kick back, go through some of these questions, see if we can get some answers to those questions, and um, today we'll be talking a little bit about tarsal tunnel, Morton's neuroma, metatarsalgia, We'll be uh, answering the question, can a rotator cuff tear cause forearm, wrist, and hand pain? We'll talk about what kind of shoe is recommended for sesamoiditis. Do all meniscus tears require surgery? And uh, the question of, is it better to stretch a frozen shoulder aggressively or lightly? So let's start with our first question. Um, this was a uh, this came on a video that I had on YouTube where I was differentiating between Morton's neuroma and metatarsalgia. And somebody said, well, let's throw in tarsal tunnel syndrome. How can we differentiate between those three? And... To me, this sounds pretty easy, but there are a lot of things going on here. So some of the common factors that we'll see with Morton's neuroma would be, you know, more involvement of the third and fourth toes, um, not necessarily the the metatarsals. They are, Morton's neuroma is usually more affected in the inner metatarsal space between the third and fourth metatarsals. Um, there'll be paresthesia into those third and fourth toes. Sometimes you'll get into the second. Um, and you can get it in all five, but really the most common is the third and fourth. Um, if you're wondering if the paresthesias in the toes, uh, especially that fourth toe, is coming from tarsal tunnel syndrome, all you need to do is a tenel sign at the tarsal tunnel. So if you tap that tarsal tunnel and the fourth and fifth toes go numb and tingly, it's likely there is a tarsal tunnel syndrome. Okay, if you're poking between that third and fourth metatarsal inner space and the toes go tingly, it's more likely to be that neuroma. The other thing you can do is a Morton squeeze. So if you squeeze the first through fifth metatarsals together and you get a little click and sometimes pain going into the third, fourth metatarsals or into the toes, then that's more likely to be a Morton's neuroma. Whereas a metatarsalgia is tender on the metatarsal heads mostly on the plantar surface, but can also be tender on the dorsal surface. So if you're tender right on the joint, not likely to be tarsal tunnel, not likely to be a Morton's neuroma, okay? So I do have videos for all the above, which I will link in today's show notes. So if you want to take a look at each one individually or how I differentiate between them, um, please take a peek at those. Uh, Most all of these are uh, on actual patients who have actual issues there. So um, check that out. Now, next question was, can a rotator cuff tear cause forearm, wrist, and hand pain? And I see a lot of patients who come in thinking that their hand paresthesia pain is coming from their shoulder injury. And it is very, very unlikely that you'll develop forearm, wrist, and hand pain with a rotator cuff tear, with adhesive capsulitis. Um, You know, if... You can coincidentally have like a torn rotator cuff and a ro- and a uh, you know uh, carpal tunnel problem uh, that can happen. 
If you're getting pain from the shoulder all the way down to the fingers, I really would be looking at the cervical spine. I would do a complete cervical spine clearing test just to make sure this is not a radiculopathy from a nerve root compression. The other thing I would look at um, would be nerve gliding. Is there a nerve gliding issue? Because if you have a rotator cuff tear, let's say, and you haven't lifted that arm in a long time, or maybe an adhesive capsulitis, and you haven't been able to reach very well, and you have some loss of neural mobility, especially in the brachial plexus, that can give you discomfort that goes all the way down the arm and passes the elbow. But in general, if somebody has a rotator cuff issue, impingement, rotator cuff tear, maybe a partial tear, uh, maybe they've had a dislocation or something like that, it's very unlikely that the pain coming from the shoulder will go past the elbow, okay? So if it does, you need to be thinking outside the box. Um, the next question we had was, what kind of shoe would you recommend for sesamoiditis, which led to lateral foot pain and mostly pain around the fifth metatarsal? So that's a great question. Now, sesamoiditis is a lot of inflammation at those sesamoid bones just underneath that first metatarsal phalangeal joint. So modifying or changing the shoe can, can help. Um, you want to avoid high-heeled shoes that put a lot of downward pressure on the metatarsals and onto the sesamoids. So a lower-heeled shoe can work better. I'm a big advocate of using a rocker bottom shoe and one that does not fold in the front of the shoe. So if you t grab the heel of the shoe, drive it into the floor, straight down, perpendicular to the floor, and if it folds really easy at the toe box, probably not a good shoe for somebody with sesamoiditis. Okay, you want somebody with that has a uh, a shoe with a fairly rigid rocker bottom to it, okay, such as a Hoka or an MBT type of shoe. The other really more important factor here is can the insole be modified or can you do an orthotic that has some sort of a drop off where the sesamoids are or you can make like a metatarsal pad that, that puts pressure on the first metatarsal shaft and not so much on the sesamoid so there's a little drop off for the sesamoid so cutting that out can take some pressure therefore if you can take the pressure off of the sesamoids you're not likely to walk on the lateral side of the foot to offload the sesamoids now remember the fifth metatarsal is really not made to take up a lot of load. So if you're walking on the outside of that foot a lot, um, it's not uncommon to develop like a peroneal, uh, peroneus brevis tendonitis or even a stress fracture to that fifth metatarsal because it just is taking up too much load repetitively. So trying to get that person back to a normal walk is very important and getting into a good shoe with a, a good insole is very important. Next. Do all meniscus tears need to be surgically fixed? And the answer to that is no. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, it seemed like everybody who had a meniscus tear was having uh, arthroscopic surgery and having meniscectomy. Um, now we're seeing that uh, the meniscus tears are, they're trying to repair them a little bit more. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there that have meniscus tears and function very well, okay? So the reason... Some of the biggest reasons you need to have uh, a meniscus surgery is because you have a locked meniscus. So you're not able to straighten or bend the knee joint because you just have a large piece of meniscus that's locked in there. No different than having a, a stick across your spokes and in, on your bike and it's getting stuck in the forks, okay? Uh, you can't keep riding your bike, right? You got to take that, 
that's takeout, and that's uh, what happens with a meniscus that is locked or a big bucket handle tear, uh, something like that. And when there is unrelenting pain, when the pain just does not go away, the knee stays swollen, the quad gets shut down, um, it's time to intervene if it doesn't get better conservatively. But there are a lot of people out there that have small meniscus tears uh, that can do very well just with a good strengthening program, edema reduction with NSAIDs, uh, and uh, you know a compression brace for the knee. And, you know, optimally, you know, getting back to normal function. And uh, we've seen uh, some folks do really well with that and not require surgery. But if they're just, you know, plateauing and not getting better, uh, it's time to uh, meet with orthopedist, an orthopedist and uh, hopefully get that fixed. And the last question we have today, is it better to stretch a frozen shoulder aggressively or lightly? Whew, that's loaded. Now, I'm not going to deny the fact that I've manipulated a few frozen shoulders in the clinic myself uh, over the years. I've been at it a long time. We used to really stretch these aggressively. Um, some people did really well with that and others did not. And some people just had a difficult time, had a lot of inflammation. Really, the literature now shows gentle mobilization is important working the patient in the range that they have and not overstretching, not causing a lot of inflammation. Now, I have three frozen shoulder patients right now, and I have two that look, when they first started with me, almost exactly alike in regards to their limited motion, where they had pain, and the amount of time that they've had pain for. Now, one gentleman, I can stretch quite aggressively, and as soon as I let go, um, the pain goes away. And whereas the other gentleman I have, if I stretch him aggressively, he stays painful for quite a long time. And so as we tried to push him along a little bit more, he came back a couple days later and said, you know what, I was really set back for a day to two days after our treatment. Whereas the previous gentleman said right away, I had less pain, I had much better function. And so he's responded within about three weeks and done very well and almost has 100% range of motion back. Whereas my other gentleman is coming along, I cannot push him very hard, we're pushing very lightly and he is tolerating that better. And since we slowed down with him, He's been progressing nicely um, with nice, steady improvement. So not everybody can tolerate that aggressive stretch. But if somebody is not in that acute phase anymore and it's more of a tightness and you stretch them and you let off and it responds really quickly and the pain goes away right away, then those are the folks that you can stretch a little more aggressively. Always take into consideration, do they have complex regional pain syndrome? Do they have a bone density issue like osteoporosis? You know, and you need to ask those questions and find out before you start to stretch a little more aggressively if you think they're going to tolerate it. So um, the rule of thumb is uh, low and slow, low load, long duration stretch, um, and that patient will do well. You can start strengthening them at any time during their uh, frozen shoulder process and uh, as long as it's in the comfortable range because they need to know what it's like to feel normal and to move normally and not to get into ranges that cause compensation. Um, so that's my input today on our five questions. Uh, if you have any questions that you'd like put on the show, feel free to send those over to me. I'd be more than happy to um, get these together and uh, give my uh, feedback and my honest opinion from my experience on how we manage these um, types of uh, questions and these types of problems. So hope you enjoyed today's show and um, thanks for listening. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.